you know, when you're when you're talking to customers and if a knowledgeable salesperson is there asking good questions, oftentimes it will highlight the information gap where a buyer starts to realize, geez, I really don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. And, you know, what's focal in the conversation is deemed important by the buyer. So if you're asking questions about areas where they're unaware or they're just not sure they don't know, it's it's going to bring that to the forefront, which then gives you an opportunity to demonstrate your your expertise. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Paul Riley. Paul is the author of the best-selling book, Selling Through Tough Times, as well as being a speaker and a sales trainer. And our conversation today, Paul and I are talking about his book, which he published before these tough times started. So uh, we dive into the topic of uncertainty. There's certainly lots of uncertainty in tough times. And we talk about why that uncertainty is actually of value to salespeople. We dig into why in difficult times, buyers want to be challenged, not coddled. And why this need to be challenged creates opportunities for sellers who demonstrate leadership. Yes, leadership. So then we explore the four ways Paul believes sellers need to demonstrate leadership with their buyers. And then we get to the topic of perceived value, which is actually very important, again, in tough times, and how that perception of value influences how you should be messaging your buyers in difficult times, just like we have today. So all of that and much, much more. Now, before we get to Paul, though, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. All right, let's jump into it. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to meet you for the first time. Um, Folks who don't know about you, tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So my mission is pretty simple. Um, I want to help sales organizations sell more profitably by competing on value and not price. Um, So everything we do at my Mm -hmm. company focuses on that that one key mission. Uh, We do that through training seminars, keynote presentations, consulting, and coaching as well. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I'm a golf fanatic. I love golf. (laughs) As I I was doing my research into you, that became very clear. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'll be out actually in California just in a a few weeks, get a chance to play uh, Torrey Pines. I think you're you're out in California. I'm in San Diego. Oh, you're in San Diego. Oh, Hey, played Torrey hey. Pines many, many times. Awesome. So is it your first time playing Torrey Pines? You know, I played the South Course before uh, with mm-hmm. some buddies. Uh, we were out there for a wedding in uh, La Jolla, a beautiful yeah. area. And unfortunately, it was really foggy that day. So the front nine, we um, we actually didn't get a chance to, to really see the beauty of the course until yeah. Yeah. about the 10th hole. Um, actually, I wrote it. I wrote an article about it. And kind of drew a parallel to the fog we were experiencing then to the fog we experienced through 2020. And the words were, hey, no worries, man, the fog will lift soon. That's what the uh, that's what the starter <laughs> told us. And that, that right. kind of served as a mantra throughout the pandemic for me. Yeah. Well, if you'd played today, it would have been foggy as well. Um, yeah. And usually it was foggy here. But for the listeners, Torrey Pines is one of the, well, perhaps arguably the the finest public golf course in the United States and uh, been the site of a couple of U.S. Opens and a PGA tournament every year. And it's, yeah, perched on the cliffs above the ocean. Uh, and it's, it's pretty spectacular. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't 
haven't played golf much in the last uh, 10 years, but uh, there was a period there I was playing a fair amount. And yeah, Tory was on the regular rotation. And yeah, the only drawback was uh, long rounds, typically. <laughs> For sure. Well, maybe you can so, give me oh, the residential rate when I'm out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, you need your, your county ID. Uh, That's right. In order to get that. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we're going to talk about a topic that's that's very apropos for <laughs> this month, this this year, next year, which is uh, really the title of your, your book, Selling Through Tough Times. So yeah. you wrote that really before the tough times were upon us. Were you anticipating it or is it just knowing that we go through cycles and there's always going to be tough times? Yeah, a little bit of both there, Andy. It was um, yeah. 2019. I was coming off you know, one of the best years in our business continued mm -hmm. business was growing. I'm like, wow, things have been going pretty well for a while. Something bad is inevitably going to happen. Usually a recession, mm -hmm. a downturn. Um, and so I started writing the book um, and I pitched it to my uh, publisher while the economy was at record pace. Everything was going great. And they said, yeah, let's table it. And then a few months later, <laughs> they said, yeah, <laughs> yeah pre-pandemic. And then the pandemic happened. And they said, hey, by the way, do you still have that book idea. Um, and so we, uh, we made that a priority and put together the book and, and it's really, I started writing before the pandemic. So it's not a book on how to sell during a pandemic. It's really relevant for any downturn, whether it's specific to an industry or just one salesperson, um, or, a, you know, a general recession. Yeah. Or as you said, for a salesperson, just experiencing tough times, right? I mean, independent of what's happening around, I mean, we all go through those periods where, Sure. Uh, yeah, we experienced tough times. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was reading a post you had written about the value of uncertainty to sellers. Yep. And I wanted to dig into that because I, I thought that was really on point in, in many ways. But why don't you tell us what that post was about in terms of what the value of uncertainty to sellers sure. is? Sure, absolutely. You know, when, um, when we experience uncertainty, so I'm going to ask all the listeners to put their buyer hat on for a moment. All right. Um, and think about your customers and what they go through. Anytime there is uncertainty, your customers, your decision makers, they're looking for guidance. They're looking for ways to eliminate risk. They're looking for individuals who possess the knowledge, the expertise to help guide them through um, uncertainty. So it could mm -hmm. be uncertainty about, you know, the economic state of our you know, uh, what's going on right now. It could be just uncertainty in a specific industry. People are looking to absorb information to make the best possible decision. So in that sense, uncertainty can actually be a good thing for salespeople because it creates an opportunity for you to help guide your customers, to lead them uh, through that that uncertain time. Yeah, and as I was reading that, it struck me, you know, one of the things that, that I was replacing the <laughs> the term uncertainty with ambiguity, right? Because I think that's something that, that pops up in every buying situation, sales situation at some point or another is this, this, this ambiguity about, you know, A, is this something that, that we, the buyer, should be doing? The ambiguity about if it is, how are we going to execute it? How are we going to make a decision? Who's involved? Who influences it? There's just lots of ambiguity or uncertainty really in any sales situation. And mm -hmm. it can be paralyzing for buyers. Absolutely. And, you know, when when buyers don't know what to do, when they're un, unsure, they're uncertain, uh, there is a tendency to hit the pause button, right? They want to hit pause and just kind of wait things out, take their time. 
because they're not going to be in a hurry to make the wrong decision. So they're going to they're going to wait things out a little bit. Uh, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Well, and this idea of sellers as leaders, I think, is one that's really underdeveloped in general in mm-hmm. sales. Which I personally think, you know, the role of individual salesperson is fundamentally as a leader. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is, you know, unless you, your picture of a leader is you know, command and control, mm-hmm. uh, which is not one of those. But if you think the job, uh, sort of, you know, mirroring Stephen M. R. Covey's latest book, Trust and Inspire, if, if the job of a leader is to build trust and inspire people to take action, that's our described salespeople. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. And hand in hand with that, um, you know, depending on how we want to word it, but leaders can challenge people. Um, mm-hmm. they, they challenge them, their, their mindset. I mean, you, you think about the popularity of that concept with the challenger sale even. Um, and I think a strong leader, at least the strong leaders I've worked for throughout my career, strong leaders that I've met, they, they do challenge people. They inspire them. There's that level of trust. And I, I think you add all those ingredients up, you're going to get a successful salesperson as well. Yeah. And I mean, yes. Yeah, sales leadership starts from the bottom up, actually, to some degree. Um, <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that that it's not it's not an area that's stressed enough, and I think it's stressed less than it used to be. I mean, I when I certainly when I got started in sales, one of the attractions of being in in sales was the company that hired me. You know, huge computer company was. They're very both the hiring managers, both level hiring managers above me, were very clear. Which is, you know, this is this is your business. You're this territory, this patch you have, which in my case at that time was a uh, both a geographic and a line of business, a vertical market patch. Was was uh, this is your business, right? You're the CEO of this small small company. Um, yeah, the opportunity is there to exhibit some leadership and show us how how you think this should be done. And, Absolutely. you know, we'll support you and give you the <laughs> enough rope to hang yourself to do it. <laughs> but you hear that less and less frequently these days, whereas sellers now become more, hey, you know, you can fit in the slot for a period of time. Just, you know, get the job done. Sort of these interchangeable parts. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I wonder why that is. Because, you know, I, I, I do... Remember that in my sales career, you know, every sales manager I worked for leader was similar to that extent. Hey, this is your business. You're the CEO of your territory. Um, Here's what we expect. Go out and make it happen and find the best way to achieve it. It, It's interesting in in that regard. Um, I wonder why it is. Well, I think some of it. Perhaps I wonder what you you experienced in this regard. Certainly in, let's say, the software world. There's a, a large segment of sales leaders who think that it's really the process that succeeds, right? We set up this process that creates these predictable outcomes, and we just need to find people to plug into those things. Mm-hmm. Now, I take the position, I've been you know, very open about it, that, yeah, the results in general in that segment are pretty, pretty poor. Uh, yeah, that's not really working the way you think it is, right? I mean, if you got to... You know, well, it's just not true of software. I mean, there was a study that came out 
in a book earlier this year that surveyed you know, 14,000 companies around the world, enterprise buyers or enterprises, and you know, average win rate on deals more than greater than 100K was only at 17%. Um, you know, to me, that <laughs> that sort of illustrates the point is that, yeah, we, we create these processes, we've got our tech stack going, it's, you know, we're trying to make this happen and have the sales person be a less important part of it. You know, there's one sales tech vendor, I, you know, cut out the quote from their website was, you know, with this product, you can substitute for the judgment of the salesperson, right? As if that's something you really want, right? (laughs) Which is, is that a benefit? Right. (laughs) Right. So it's like, uh, sure. If you want to abdicate your responsibility to develop your people to become the best version of themselves, to help them develop, their judgment. Mm-hmm. Sure. But if your vision is that's what you're trying to do, then yeah, you're just trying to dumb down everything. And this idea of, you know, having your sellers feel this, this proprietary ownership of their patch, whatever it is, sort of goes out the window. Hmm. That is, it is interesting. And in, you know, the replacement of a, a salesperson. And I, I recall, I forgot, um, Oh, it may have been in Harvard Business Review or I, I forgot one of the, you know, major publications. They're talking about mm-hmm. the role AI is playing in sales and how, you know, ultimately, you know, salespeople can be replaced. They can do this. You can outsource this and that. And it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I was certainly intrigued by it as, as someone who makes a living training and speaking to salespeople. It was, um, it's good to see on the other side of the table, but I just don't. I don't know if you can replace certain elements of selling that, you know, it is a Mm -hmm. flesh pressing screen to screen or voice to voice interaction that requires, you know, emotional intelligence. It requires judgment as we've talked about as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It requires finesse, but it requires a lot of empathy. I'd lump that in there with emotional intelligence, I guess, but Mm -hmm. how, how do you replace that? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that. I mean, I sort of at a broader level. Excuse me. Yeah, there's certain things that uh, more automation with AI, machine learning will take the place of what humans do. We we see that already. I mean, mm-hmm. but to your point is is at a certain level of complexity where the ability to ask the non-obvious questions, right, to be able to synthesize. Mm-hmm. information have that come back in the form of a question that yeah challenges the buyer to some degree uh you know exhibits a level of creativity and from a perspective that the buyers don't have i don't think that's going to be replaced by machines unless right. unless we just give it up unless we sort of keep down the path we're doing now which is you know sort of the the dream of i think of of some people is and some investors is like yeah let's just get rid of salespeople. And I think you see the sort of argument coming from some analyst firms that, hey, you know, we've done the survey and buyers don't want to talk to sellers. And my, I you know, heard that and I thought, huh, I'm not sure I've ever met a buyer who wants to talk to a seller. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. But the self-aware buyer knows they need to, right? They need sure. somebody from the outside who, who... Uh, yeah, can come in and ask the questions that they don't think to ask themselves because right. they won't make a good decision. 
You, you want that guidance as, you know, a buyer, you know, say you're providing a, a technically complex solution like a, like a software package or enterprise system. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the first few times that this group of decision makers has gone through the process. They want mm -hmm. someone who has some gray hairs in the industry to walk them through it. Um, that's, I mean, that's just human nature. You think about anything we go through that we're uncertain about, that we don't have all the information, something new that we've experienced. We want, we want that level of guidance. We want someone to hold our hand through that process. Right. Yeah. And anything that's sort of complex from a, a purchase standpoint and software, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear it. Fighter jets flying overhead. Oh, um, that's the sound of freedom, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know why they're, they're so active today. But um, is uh, – as I lost my train of thought. As the flyer, <laughs> jet flyers fight over flyoverhead. Um, oh, we're talking about the yeah, guidance and so on. Mm -hmm. Is – yeah, for most products, of any sort of complexity is how often does a company buy them? Right. Not very often. I mean, is there institutional knowledge that is left behind if you're buying a – CRM system every five plus years. Uh, you, did you really document it to what you did the last time? And plus all the people that were involved with it the last time, they're probably gone. I mean, it becomes like a, a new process again. For sure. And yeah, you need, I said the self-aware buying organization understands that they need people to come in and, and help them mm -hmm. understand the nature of the challenges they face. Yeah. Cause it's oftentimes, different or more than what they, they think and yeah, the nature of the outcomes they can achieve. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I don't know. In general, I we would sort of summarize on this one, one topic, but uh, I've always felt that I remember hearing a talk early in my career from this, this uh, speaker at a sales kickoff meeting and saying that, yeah, is his opinion. This was an academic and you know, done a bunch of studies on that. You know, the number one for him, the number one, I wouldn't call it skill because I'm not sure it's a skill, but number one attribute that a successful person, business person will have and salesperson in particular was this idea of a tolerance for ambiguity mm -hmm. and a tolerance for uncertainty and again, I think that this is sort of, and I'm interested because, you know, you're in the training business, but there are certainly many trainers that, again, it's this focus on this is the way we do things. Do things this way, right? And we've got this, follow these steps, do things, things precisely, and we'll get a predictable result. And my belief has always been, is, sure, process is important, but you're dealing with humans right. and human environment, and it's it's inherently unpredictable. And the things that you think you can control as a salesperson are way fewer than you really can. Um, and so this idea of uncertainty and ambiguity, I think, and the ability to operate in those environments is hugely important for sellers. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that's also part of what motivates salespeople, you know, not knowing hmm. whether you're going to achieve that outcome or not, not knowing whether your customer is going to decide to partner with you or go with your competitor, that, you know, that level of uncertainty is, is motivating. Um, in fact, I recently on my, um, on my podcast, I had this author, she wrote a new book called future tense 
And it's really about how anxiety can be a good thing um, at certain levels, of course. But mm-hmm. in, in the book, she talked about how uncertainty, in, in some cases, it helps spark creativity. The anxiety also motivates us to work harder. So I think that for salespeople, yeah, being able to to handle that level of ambiguity or uncertainty or knowing there's, you know, a lot at stake with this deal. And if we don't get it, what's going to happen? That that really drives them as well. I had a buddy of mine who was um, working for one of the big account, accounting firms. And, mm-hmm. he and me and another buddy were sitting around having a barbecue. And he just flat out said, he goes, I don't know how you guys are in sales. He goes, how can you deal with not knowing what your paycheck is going to look like the next month and the month after and this and that. And, you know, frankly, I said, you know, that's part of the motivating aspect is that when you put yourself in a position where success can be your only option, it's amazing how you rise to that expectation. You reveal your, your potential, maybe not your, your absolute potential, but you're getting closer to it uh, just based on the environment. Yeah. Well, I like to use the word creativity because I think, Again, I, I feel like to a, a larger extent than it should be is is we've got more and more sales managers are trying to you know again manage creativity out of the process mm-hmm. and and yeah I think it's that that for at least for me in my career that challenge that's presented by the need to be creative in moments of uncertainty or ambiguity. I loved it. That's what got me coming back. Right. Sure. I mean, sure. I made money if it worked out well at the end, which it did, but, but it was that process of helping the buyer work through that and to need to be creative with the questions you ask and the, the approaches you took and the perspectives you provided that, that helped the buyer make progress toward making their decision. Each one was different. Uh, and I, I think this, this, yeah, again, I sort of this theme that I keep seeing coming back and back is is everybody wants to make sales sort of this the sameness, right? Let's make it repetitive. Let's make it, you know, cookie cutter. And while I get that, the fact is those people forget you're dealing with human beings. And right. everyone's gonna be different. You can have a persona for you know, somebody that within your ICP, but they may resemble it somewhat, but they're not gonna be it. Right. And too often sellers get into that environment and want to see certainty where there's really uncertainty. Right. And as a result, you default to, Hey, here are the questions I always ask. And it's like, sure. But this is really a situation where there are some questions you need to ask that maybe you've never asked before. Right. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's one of the things in, in selling through tough times, we, we talk about the benefits of tough times, mm-hmm. you know, tough times, spark creativity. It, it forces you to take a hard look at how how you are approaching your profession, how you're solving problems, how you're providing solutions and all that, and and really question whether you're doing it the right way. Because um, what happens, I mean, let's let's be real. Since the since the Great Recession right before the pandemic, we've been on a pretty good economic run. <laughs> I mean it, it's been fourteen years. Unpar- so, yeah, yeah, twelve years. Yeah. It's unparalleled. And here's what happens during good economic times that will mask bad sales behavior. You know, if you oh, sell a de- if you sell a decent product and you do your work, um, 
you can go out there and be somewhat successful just just by the benefit of having a great economy. But during tough times, that mask comes off. You get a real look at at your approach, your profession, what you're doing. And, and that's when some salespeople realize and organizations realize, hey, we need to we need to try something different. We need to get creative on how we approach the, you know, our, our sales process. Uh, salespeople are getting creative on how they can get more meetings, ask mm-hmm. better questions, generate better discussions. It um, It's really one of the hidden benefits. Yeah. Well, I mean, this idea of constraints, right? Mm-hmm. So when, in tough times, there's going to be more constraints that you have to work with. For sure. And yeah, the theory of constraints <laughs> leads to this idea that that it demands creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, coming up with new solutions to attack existing problems or new problems that you've had. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, I think back to in my career, I've been around long enough, seen more than my fair share of, of recessions and economic downturns, but um, I, I hadn't really thought about it much. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago and talking about uh, my first job selling these big computer systems that, you know, room folds of metal and for customers. But the biggest challenge we had at that time uh, was that interest rates were so high. It was costing businesses, you know, 15 to 17% interest on business loans, financing on computer equipment. So it was, when you think about it, gosh, we have to be able to justify this, uh, just the cost of, of the financing itself. <laughs> right. You had to be pretty creative. And, yep. you know, we spent almost as much time how, trying to find uh, the right source of financing for the buyer <laughs> as it was for, for selling the system. But that was, you just had to bake that into, into your process, Absolutely. right? Because... Well, something might have been a 90-day process. You know, we'd start it. If we thought, you know, we're close to getting an order, um, we'd start the process of, of helping the, the buyer shop for financing. And part of what I spent a lot of time doing is, is building up this whole network of, of you know, business financing organizations we could go to to try to get approval. You found a way. You had to make it happen, right? That, that's you something creative. And that's something... Um, you know, prior to, you know, back in the 80s when when inflation and, and interest rates were that high, I I don't know if there was another time prior to that to where sellers knew what to do or business people. And, and so it's something new, a new challenge. We got to get creative. We find a way to, to work through it. Yeah. And were buyers uncertain? Absolutely. Because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was <laughs> it, it was daunting, mm-hmm. and yeah, without dating myself too badly, I mean, for many of the companies I was selling to, it was these are sometimes good sized companies. So it was their first foray into computerization. Wow. Yeah. So you think about them thinking about well, how do we mitigate the risks? As you write about in the book, is is yeah, how do we mitigate our risks? Because this is something we sort of really need to do because everybody's starting to do it and we're feeling competitive pressures to do it. But it's, it's yeah, it was a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, let alone the financing costs. And, yeah, you had to be creative in helping the customer think about what the value really would be for them 
and help them justify that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you, as you talked about before, as you work a lot of companies about value-based selling and, and you write about the idea that, that perceived value or the idea of perceived value is, is sort of tougher to sell in, in tough times. So talk about that. So with, um, and, and I think in, in what you're referring to in tough times is when tough times fall upon customers, they, they become more focused on priorities. Uh, so they're, they're more focused on what they have to have versus what's nice to have. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so in, in that regard, um, we, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of, okay, the value added extras that we previously offered that maybe during good economic times would really help create a better overall package. Sometimes during, during a recession or during a downturn, customers are going to look at this and they're going to say, okay, what can we get by with? What is a necessity at this point? Um, so they, they do start to streamline their purchases, but um, talking about perceived value, perceived value is, is also a, an important aspect of selling because as buyers make decisions, they're constantly weighing out, okay, is this worth it? All right, I'm looking at this solution. Here's what I sacrifice. Here's what I potentially gain. Is that exchange worth it? And if they believe it's fair and you can add more value or provide a greater overall value than your competition, you have a good good chance at winning that deal. Um, so in, in that regard, you can build that perceived value. Perceived value is is the look and feel. It's it's what raises the buyer's expectations. All right, performance value is about delivering on the expectations. Um, you know, to use a, a popular mm-hmm. sales analogy, you know, you go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse or Fleming's or whatever, and they bring the plate of meat to you and it's sizzling, it's crackling, you can smell it, you, your mouth is salivating. That sizzling, that crackling, that is the perceived value, all right? But once you bite into that steak and it tastes just as good as you hoped it would, that's the performance value piece. Um, so mm-hmm. the focus throughout the sales process or the customer's buying journey is really to to maximize perceived value, to make those big promises and then and then deliver on them. And, and the interesting piece here, it, it drives me nuts in business when people constantly say, hey, let's under-promise and over-deliver, under-promise, over-deliver. Like who, who can get excited about selling under-promising, right, Andy? I mean, you could go out and say, hey, I know you got choices, but we're, we're the most mediocre of all of them. That's, that's bull. I mean, if you can sell that, you should you know, be a New York Times bestselling author, all that. You got to make yeah. big promises, not unrealistic promises, but big promises, and then you deliver on that. Um, and not only that, but when you influence the buyer's expectations by making big promises, you you become the benchmark from which every other option is graded. And then once mm-hmm. you deliver on those expectations, you become market leaders. And, and that's what mm-hmm. companies should aspire to be. But the other, you know, the most dangerous aspect of under-promising is that eventually you're going to live down to those expectations. You know, you think about, you right. can call it the Rosenthal effect, the Pygmalion effect. You People mm-hmm. rise or fall to the expectations placed upon them. So if you're constantly under-promising, you're going to live down to those expectations. So you, you got to make big promises. Yeah, I, and I, I think in the context, not always even about 
big promises. I mean, it, it's, uh, maybe it's the same. It's, it's, you know, I think of my own experience with, uh, for years working in startups, we were selling really large, complex communication systems. We, yeah, we're small companies competing against big companies, mm-hmm. but where we created perceived value was in conversations with the buyers, a, we oftentimes made them feel like we understood them and what their problems were better than everybody else. And yeah, we challenged, we, we had more creative approaches to helping them achieve what they wanted to achieve. Um, And so the perceived value was oftentimes this, yeah, these guys are, A, these guys are really smart. B, they really got it going. And gee, they must be, <laughs> they must be real much bigger than they look at this point in time. Um, but there was just a, there was a set of creativity and a rigor applied to helping the buyer where there was a tremendous amount of perceived value in that, right? Is, is they actually sure. thought this company can help me where, and they really get me and they think they can help me more than the other ones. And yeah, that was, I think that perceived value for me was if you could establish that reasonably quickly compared to the competition, you had the inside track. For sure. And, you know, in fact, just to validate what you're saying, um, we did a study with, so with value added selling um, in our most recent edition, we had Mm -hmm. a best sales practices study where we looked at top achieving salespeople and we also interviewed 600 of their customers so right. we're not doing medical research. So, you know, we just want to gather data. But uh, right. we had some intriguing uh, data points, one of which was looking at at companies. And buyers said, really, you know, all things being equal, which, you know, take that for what it is, all things mm-hmm. being equal. Customers are going to do business with companies that make it easy to do business with them. And mm-hmm. that is where smaller, nimble, more flexible companies have a distinct advantage. Because the bigger the company, the more inflexible they are, the the more rigid they are with, you know, policies, rules, procedures. Mm-hmm. Whereas exactly. when you're when you're working with a, a startup in that startup mindset, you have complete flexibility because it's typically one or two phone calls to the owner of the company who can say, well, yeah, we can do that or no, we can't do that. And and you tend to be a little more flexible also because you're looking to build your business, which means you're willing to do more. You're hungrier. It's that old hurts. Hey, we're number two mindset. So we got to work harder. Um, that that mm-hmm. plays into it as well. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, give several examples of my own experience where um, you can develop as a smaller company, often I should develop a deeper level of trust on the part of the buyer than bigger companies can. Mm-hmm. Um, in some parts, because it's a little more personal. But also, yeah, this inflexibility of the bigger companies and perceived value. Um, yeah, I use that as a competitive strategy, selling for smaller companies, because we were oftentimes competing for, like I said, seven, eight, nine-figure type deals, mm-hmm. is if push got to shove and, and you know, we were saying, okay, maybe when run into a tough spot and maybe we're not sure exactly what the best move forward is. Uh, it looks like maybe the customers, you know, maybe leaning with the bigger competitor is yeah, we'd go try to change the playing field. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> sometimes we'd 
say, okay, well, gosh, that's, you know, I know you want, yeah, 10 of these things, let's say, you know, installed simultaneously around the country. Let's just start with one and do a proof of concept, yeah. right? And, and let's make sure we can integrate it into your existing system very smoothly. Big companies hated that, right? Because they had bigger numbers they had to hit every month and they just couldn't be that nimble to say, God, we had forecast this deal at 10 and now it's one. Uh, no, no, right. we're not going to do that. And uh, yeah, being nimble as a small company gave you a lot of advantage, especially if you doesn't built that level of trust with the buyer. For sure. Absolutely. Um, so you'd had, um, we're getting back to this topic of leadership. You had another thing I read is, is of yours. You talk about four leadership ideas for, for sellers. And I thought it was an interesting piece. It was, uh, leading with expertise, leading with stability, lead with a better vision, and lead with confidence. And I just want to run through those because I thought very interesting. So when you talk about leading with expertise for a seller, mm-hmm. is, it, um, is it more about what you know or is it more about the questions you ask? So I would say it's more in the context of that article, it's more about what you know, all right? In the context of this article, there, there is a gap between what customers know um, and, and what they don't know, right? It's an information gap. That's mm-hmm. all it is. Right. And as a sales professional, if you can help close that gap, if you can educate them, provide insights, that is going to position you as a, as a value creator. It's also going to help you lead them through the uncertainty, right? Because uncertainty in part is due to a lack of information. And if you can provide information that reassures the buyer, that helps them make the right decision, and they they feel good about the expertise, meaning they believe in it, they, they trust you. We've talked about trust as well. That's, mm-hmm. going to, that's going to help them make the decision. It's going to help you help lead them through that process as well. Um, in fact, I, I mentioned our you know, our best practices study, the, um, mm-hmm. and, and this blew my mind, actually, when we asked customers, you know, what attributes are the most important when it comes to salespeople, knowledgeable expertise ranked higher than trustworthiness, which was surprising to us. Um, it, trustworthiness was close on the list, you know, so it, it mm-hmm. obviously is important. I, I would find hard pressed anyone to say, oh, trustworthiness doesn't matter. No, it absolutely does. But in our survey, knowledgeable expertise ranked higher, which mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. So customers expect it, they need it, and during tough times, that knowledge can help lift the fog, right? The Torrey Pines fog, it can help lift it <laughs> out of there and get buyers through. So that's um, – and, and I think in part two, you, you could make the case that that includes knowing what questions to ask, right? And – it's funny because a lot of you know buyers might say, "Oh, well, I can just find it online. I can just Google it. I can right. do this." It's all about knowing what to Google, really, and the seller can help uh, provide that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I appreciate the the study, and I think that that's you know it's all part and parcel of the experience, the way the buyer experiences the sellers. Um, I probably lean a little bit more toward the questions because mm-hmm. yeah, I think sellers always sort of have finite knowledge mm-hmm. but if in the the face of of acknowledging that you don't know everything you should know questions are a great way to move forward and help the customer 
obviously yeah. think again about what they're trying to accomplish. Cause I mean, I, I don't know. We're all were young sellers. So That's one point or another. I start off in very technical fields as a non-technical person. Uh, yeah. I would think back to my first sales calls, you know, calling on the founders and owners and CEOs of big construction companies, you know, looking like a teenager um, mm-hmm. <laughs> not knowing anything. Yeah. It was my questions that got me through, right? It's the questions that I asked that kept them talking to me. Sure. And um, so, yeah, not to yeah. underplay knowledge, but I think that, that yeah. we always have limits to knowledge, but hopefully no limits to questions. Sure. And you, I, uh, interesting piece about, you know, questions, right? That's, that's an art form and a science in and of itself. Uh, books have been written on how to ask questions the right way and all that. We could talk mm. for hours on that, but part of, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking to customers and if a knowledgeable salesperson is there asking good questions, oftentimes it will highlight the information gap where a buyer starts to realize, yep. geez, I really don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. Exactly. And, you know, what's focal in the conversation is deemed important by the buyer. So if you're asking questions about areas where they're unaware or they're just not sure, they don't know, it's it's going to bring that to the forefront, which then gives you an opportunity to demonstrate your your expertise. Yep. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to build credibility. And I write about that in my latest book is, is – uh, one of the six question types to use for discovery, which is, yeah, asking a customer a question that about their business that they should reasonably be expected to know, but possibly don't. Yeah. And great, it great becomes tip. a great, a great discovery trigger and a great conversation trigger. Great way to build credibility. Mm-hmm. Customer experiences, a little FOMO. It's like to your point before, oh, I yeah. should know that, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and if I don't know that my competitors do, well, that's a problem, right? Right. So, yeah. Uh, the next thing you had, and this is what I was interested in digging into as well, is you talk about lead with stability. Right. Because you're really talking about track record and, and so on. But mm-hmm. And you give an example you know, in the article about, you know, hey, we've been in business for 40 years and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But what if you're a young company, right? And you don't have that track record. Uh, how do you demonstrate stability? Yeah, you know, you can... Demonstrate stability on a, a couple of different fronts, um, one of which is you as the salesperson. So let's say you're an experienced industry uh, professional, yet your company does not have the, the stability. You can, you can really leverage that. Um, but if you're a new salesperson to a new company, I wouldn't recommend trying to leverage your stability. Because you just don't have it, right? I mean, it, you don't have let, it, right? Let's let's be honest. It is, you know. Instead, you you focus on the more positive aspects of your solution, right? Which, as a new salesperson, as a, a new company, gosh, you're bringing fresh ideas. We don't think the way everyone else in the industry thinks. We're new. Mm-hmm. You find you you find the target customer that uh, finds that appealing, and and you. You work that way, right? You got to get creative in, in how you're going to market yourself. Um, you know, great salespeople, I, I think, are able to find the positive aspects of their solution and really emphasize that um, as long as that aligns with what the customer is trying to accomplish. Um, but for industry vets and for companies that have stability, 
that's that's what customers want during tough times. They want something that is safe. Um, we talk a lot in the book about mitigating risk, and and right. you know you're, you're familiar probably with the, the famous JFK quote, who said, "Success has many parents, failure right. is an orphan." Well, orphan, right? <laughs> you know, during tough times, buyers, yes, they want to make the right decision, but they definitely don't want to make the wrong decision, and so during tough times. In your messaging, I would emphasize stability. I would emphasize longevity in the industry. Um, that is important because it's if you've been through tough times before, you're going to make it through the tough times that are here now. And, and I equate this to a, a flight I was on um, flying to New Orleans for a speaking gig. And, you know, it's, it's rainy in St. Louis and the, the captain comes mm -hmm. out and says, hey, you know, we're going to be flying at 36,000 feet and all that. Uh, just to let you know, there's some weather in the area. Uh, we're going to take off shortly. Don't worry, though. It might have a few bumps, but we wouldn't take off unless we were 100% sure it's safe. Um, what was reassuring about his message was not the words. It was his look. This guy had a lot of gray hair. You could tell. He, you know, he's probably in his, you know, uh, mid, mid 60s, early 60s. He was an experienced pilot who has been through turbulent air before. His calming demeanor, along with his demonstration of stability in in the way he looked, that put everyone at ease. Um, what, was, what was interesting on that flight home, we had weather again. There was no announcement before, but afterwards when we landed, and it was bumpy on the way down, you know, the, the Southwest flight attendant said, we'd like to congratulate Captain so-and-so on his first flight as a Southwest pilot. You know, they, they tell you that after you land when it's inexperienced, but stability before <laughs> is key. Well, okay, but but to that point though is is not to belabor this. It's just sure, yeah. You know, lots of companies, as I said, don't have that that track record, don't have that that stability. I think that that they really have to lean uh, really to the next point you had in terms of your leadership ideas was lead with a better vision. Sure, because and the vision isn't necessarily always risk free, right? But there's a perceived value to a better vision. Absolutely. And what can happen with uh, decision makers, leaders, when they face uncertain times, they, they start to question, okay, where, where are we headed? Um, you know, where are we going to be in the next two to three, five years? Mm -hmm. Are we still on track? They, they start to question some of their decisions as well. So a, a strong salesperson can really get that buyer out of that present state and put them into a better future state. Um, because in the present, Andy, is where we have all the pain. That's where we got to sacrifice our money, our resources. Um, that's where we got to deal with uncertainty. But a, a strong seller is going to go to that customer and say, okay, well, let's take a look at where you, you want to be three to five years from now. All right. Um, three to five years from now, what would cause you to say that you're really glad that you partnered with us on this project? Let's look look back over the past three to five years. What's going to mm -hmm. cause you to say that? Um, and really what you're doing is you're getting them out of that present state into the future. Because uh, during tough times, the future is always more promising than the present. And so mm -hmm. getting them in that mindset and, and helping them not only remember the vision, but maybe even create a bigger vision. And, and while you're having that conversation, you could say, you know, gosh, this is really an opportune time to invest because many of your competitors are kind of hunkering down and waiting things out. 
this, right. you know, three to five years from now, you could look back and say, wow, I'm glad I made this because we had, we now have significant more share in the marketplace because we, we, we decided to be bold and take action and, mm-hmm. and be true to our vision. Um, so, right. yeah, certainly that, that requires some leadership on the seller's part. Absolutely. All right. Well, all good advice about selling through tough times, which we are, <laughs> we're in the midst of right. and uh, we're going to encounter for, eh, let's say at least a year, probably. So, um, encourage people to check out Paul's book. Uh, so Paul, if people want to learn more about the book or connect with you about training or whatever, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would encourage all the listeners to check out the website, toughtimer.com. And once you go to the website, um, you can actually just click to the book link, the page on the website. And I have a complimentary chapter on how to craft your your compelling customer message during tough times. Um, it's a very tactical and practical how-to chapter that mm-hmm. will give give your audience immediate value. Um, in, in fact, you know, my publisher said, "Why are you giving away that chapter?" <laughs> and part of it is just, "Hey, let's create value for for the sales community." So, check it out. Um, it's available again at toughtimer.com. T o u g h timer.com. And then also Perfect. I'd love to connect on LinkedIn. That's where I'm by far the, the most active on sharing sales related content. Excellent. All right, Paul, thank you very much. All right, Andy, thanks for having me. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Paul Riley, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.